Support for the Source podcast comes from UT Health San Antonio, South Texas' largest academic research institution, where what is discovered in its labs translates into life-changing patient care. More at groundbreakingresearch.org. Live from the John L. Santico studio, this is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla, in for David Martin Davies. How many end-of-the-world mass panics have you lived through, and did you actually believe any of them? Well, today we're going to focus more on the scientific likelihoods when thinking about the end of the world. We'll be talking about five different possibilities with astrophysicist and author Katie Mack. She's a theoretical astrophysicist and author of the book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. She's also a researcher at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. And Dr. Mack, thank you so much for coming on our program today. Thank you for having me. The number to call if you have a question or comment today is 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. You can also email us at thesource at tpr.org. So Dr. Mack, I really enjoyed reading your book because it's not just scientific, but it's also a reflection on our own fragility and our place in the world. And when I read your book for the first time months ago, the first page quite literally changed my life. And I want to read the first paragraph of from it. Okay. So it says, the question of how the world will end has been the subject of speculation and debate among poets and philosophers throughout history. Of course, now, thanks to science, we know the answer. It's fire, definitely fire. In about 5 billion years, the sun will swell to its red giant phase, engulf the orbit of Mercury and perhaps Venus, and leave the Earth a charred, lifeless, magma-covered rock. Even this sterile, smoldering remnant is likely fated to eventually spiral into the sun's outer layers and disperse its atoms in the churning atmosphere of the drying star. So why start like that? Why start the book like that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, in, this book is about the end of the universe, and so I felt like it was important to to take care of the world first um, uh, and to, to kind of put things in context because you know, as humans living on this planet, we think of the world as, you know, kind of everything that's important to us. But when you take a step out and look in a cosmological perspective, you know, the, there's this huge universe out there and we are utterly unimportant to it. Um, and if you're really thinking about the evolution of the universe as a whole, I feel like it's it's helpful to get that that initial context that, that we are we are a tiny very temporary thing. And the story of the universe is a much longer story, a much more uh, sort of huge and violent story. And, and that was what I wanted to get into for the book. Well, you write about this in the book, but when you read something like that, you begin, like you just mentioned, to wonder about the little things. And, you know, do I really mm. have to go to work? Does a credit score <laughs> really matter when we're in a solar right. system? So how has uh -oh. doing this work changed your perspective on how you live and kind of the decisions you make? Yeah, it it really has changed my perspective a little bit. Um, you know, I, I went into this book as somebody who is very uncomfortable with the concept of death. <laughs> I'm very uncomfortable with the concept of permanence. Like, you know, uh, I I didn't like the the thought that I don't go on forever. I certainly don't like the thought that the universe doesn't go on forever. But in kind of going through the process of, you know, 
going through all these different scenarios for how the universe might end and what our ultimate cosmic future looks like, it did kind of put some things in perspective and, and just kind of made me think about how, you know, we really can't hold on to anything forever. You know, everything is temporary one way or another, and all of the little kind of psychological tricks we try to use to convince ourselves that it's okay, that, you know, something will carry on our memory or whatever. Um, at some point, those really don't work anymore. And we have to find a way to appreciate existence in the moment and, you know, find meaning in the universe as it is right now and find meaning in our lives as they are right now and not have it depend on something in the future, making it all worthwhile. And so that that did kind of change the way I think about my life and, you know, the the arc of existence um, as, mm -hmm. as something that is really temporary and special and we need to appreciate for, for what it is. Well, I want to go to a caller that we have, and we have Mary on the line. And Mary, go ahead. You're on the air. I just want to tell you that I am so pleased and happy that what you said about persevering, uh, what you said about uh, being in the moment right now, this is what we have. This is our reality. And the scriptures do tell us about the end. And, you know, we will go on, but this era will end. And they're so beautiful that we have hope. You know, it, we never need to let hope be crushed. All right, Mary. Well, thank you so much for that call. Uh, Katie, do you want to respond to that? I think people generally, I, I guess the response to your book has generally been that, you know, people appreciate your optimistic or just realistic, but kind of funny view of the end of the world. Yeah, I think, and, and you know, I think that people find different, find meaning in different ways, um, you know, and some people find meaning through spiritual practice. Some people, people find meaning through uh, understanding things in a scientific way. There are lots of different ways that people find and make their own meaning uh, in their lives. And I think that, you know, thinking about the story of the whole universe is one way to kind of put yourself in a context where you really do think about what is important to you and, and where you want you know, your existence to be. So what do astrophysicists do when there is another prediction of the end of the world like in 2012 or some psychic mm -hmm. says, you know, the world's going to end in the near future. Do you guys just have like a big group chat where you're like, oh, this guy again. So how do you combat, combat conspiracy and misinformation? Oh, you know, it, it's, it's difficult sometimes um, because, well, first of all, you really can't address everything that comes up because people have a lot of different ideas that, that sort of float around and, um, I don't. I don't always see what people are talking about because you know I'm not on the same website as a lot of a lot of people are when they're when they're talking about these kind of um, doomsday scenarios. Um, but you know all that all that we can do as scientists is is really talk about what what we have evidence for, what we are are studying, uh, what we can know from uh, from observations, and and we do understand that there are there are limits to our knowledge. Um, that there are things that we we don't understand yet. That's that's why we do the research. That's what the the whole subject is about: is trying to stretch the limits of our knowledge. Um, but uh, with some of these with some of these misinformation kind of things, sometimes you can address things directly. But a lot of times, it's just a matter of you know making more good information available, making more people who 
who do the work available to talk about how they do the work. I think it's always really useful as a scientist to be open and public about how science is done, because that that makes it a little harder to believe that the scientists are all kind of in some kind of big conspiracy, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially with doomsday scenarios where it's like, you know, oh, there's a giant asteroid coming for us and the, the scientists are keeping it a secret. <laughs> if, if you knew if you knew astronomers or other scientists at all, um, we are really bad at keeping secrets. <laughs> and, and, you know, it is really hard to get us to stop talking about our work. We're not, we're mm-hmm. not going to, you know, you're not going to have a bunch of, um, you know, grad students uh, analyzing data from a telescope and being like, oh, we better not tell anybody. Like, <laughs> that's, you know, we're all like, as soon as we have something interesting to talk about, we are telling everybody, <laughs> so, like whether you well, want us to or not. Well, let's go ahead and take a break right here. And when we get back, we can continue our conversation and talk more about your book. Uh, This is a source on Texas Public Radio, and we'll be right back. Support for TPR comes from the Lawton family of restaurants, Cappy's, Cappuccino's, Mama's Cafe, La Fonda on Main, and Jingu House, located in San Antonio. Their diverse menus and hours can be viewed at LawtonRestaurants.com. Welcome back to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla. We're talking to Dr. Katie Mack. She's a theoretical astrophysicist and author of the book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. She's also a researcher at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Mack, you can call us at 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. You can also email us at the source at tpr.org. So, Dr. Mack, just as a refresher for those of us who weren't there, how did the universe start? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. So, there's there's a point at which we can get very direct evidence for the early universe, and we have we have a really good story for how the universe, what the universe was doing within sort of a tiny fraction of a microsecond after whatever the beginning really was. Um, the the absolute beginning things are a little bit tricky and I, I can get into that but but what we know is that in the very early universe the universe was very hot and very dense and that that kind of makes sense when you think about it because right now we know that the universe is expanding um, galaxies are getting farther apart from each other they're getting farther apart from us everything is kind of spreading out in the universe and so if you just sort of extrapolate back then in the beginning, things must, must have been much closer together. Everything must have been close together. That means it was denser, it was hotter. And so we can, we can uh, go back to this idea that the universe was very hot and dense in the beginning. And that's, that's really what the Big Bang Theory is. The Big Bang Theory is this idea that the universe was hot and dense in the beginning. And it's, you know, a lot of people think of the Big Bang Theory as something that's just very elaborate idea, but it's really just that if you put it simply, that the universe was hot and dense and in some sense smaller in the beginning. And we have very direct evidence of that because we can see the the light from that time when the universe was hot and glowing with its own heat. We can see that light in, in this kind of background light um, that's throughout all of the universe. And we have we have ways of knowing that that, that really is uh, the light from the time that the universe was glowing with heat. It's kind of that light is still sort of sp- spreading through the universe. 
Um, so we can basically see the time when the universe was very hot and dense, because if we look really far away, we can see very far back in time as light has taken time to travel. So, you know, you, you look at the, at the universe as it was billions and billions of years ago, and you see that it was hotter and denser uh, than it is today. Um, as for how that hot, dense state started, that's when things get a little speculative. And there are ideas about, you know, maybe there was a singularity where everything was in a sort of infinitesimal point. Um, that's, we don't know for sure if that happened or not. We, we think there was probably a period of very rapid expansion in the very, very early universe, uh, kind of before this hot, dense phase. Maybe things expanded from an even smaller state. Um, and that's called cosmic inflation, and we have some evidence for that. But, you know, going farther back, uh, we, we really don't know. And we have a few ideas, but um, it's, it's still unclear at, at that point. But, you know, that, that said, we have a really, really good understanding of, uh, you know, back to a, a tiny fraction of a microsecond. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's 13.8 billion years. We have a really good idea of what was going on. Well, in the book, you have these different chapters dedicated to sort of five different ways the world could come to an end. And I want to start mm -hmm. with also, I just I love these names. I want to start with the big crunch. <laughs> <laughs> so could you explain okay. to us what the big crunch theory is? Yeah, so the big crunch is uh, the idea that, you know, I mentioned that the universe is expanding, that everything's getting farther apart from everything else. Um, the big crunch is the idea that, you know, maybe that expansion won't go on forever, and maybe the expansion will at some point reverse. And so those galaxies we now see moving away from us at some point will start moving toward us again. Um, and for a long time, it was really unclear if that was what was, was going to happen or not. Astronomers were measuring the expansion rate and trying to see, you know, if if the expansion is going so fast that everything will just keep going forever, or if the gravity of all the galaxies and all the stuff in the universe is pulling together enough to stop the expansion and have everything come back. Kind of like if you throw a ball up into the air, you know, you've given it a push, and so it's, it's moving away from the Earth, but gravity, you know, the Earth's gravity and the gravity of the ball are pulling, and so at some point it stops and falls down again. And there was this idea that maybe, you know, the initial push of the Big Bang was not enough, and then all that stuff was moving outward, and now it's going to come back. Um, we now don't think that the we don't think that the big crunch is likely to happen because when we measure the expansion of the universe, it, it really doesn't look like it's going to stop and turn around. But for a long time, that was kind of the leading theory that that uh, maybe maybe the universe would reverse and everything would come crashing together again, and then we would re-enter that time where the universe is hot and dense and glowing with heat. Um, but again, fortunately, it, it doesn't appear that that's going to happen. So does the expansion of the universe affect or dilute the afterglow that we were talking about earlier of the Big Bang, or how does that work? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. So... So the way it works is when you look at something really distant, um, the, because light takes a lot of time to travel uh, across very distant spaces, uh, the things that you look at farther and farther away, the light is older. It's taken longer to get here. So if we look at something nearby, like the sun, we're looking at eight minutes ago. If we look at a distant star, we might be looking at hundreds of years ago. If we look at 
um, a distant galaxy, you know, millions or billions of years ago. And we can look back farther and farther, and we can see 13.8 billion years ago to, to basically the beginning of the universe, and we see this light. And we see it in every direction because we can look, we can look far enough away in every direction, and there's this light that's, that's all around us um, in, in the universe. But because of the expansion of the universe, that light has been spread out. It has been stretched out. So it used to be, you know, bright, visible light. Now it's it's microwave radiation. So the, the light comes in different kinds of light. There's visible light. There's ultraviolet. There's infrared. There's radio. That's all different kinds of light, the different kinds of electromagnetic radiation. So that background light from the very early universe is now microwave light, and it has been diluted, so it's very uh, dim. It's um, you know just a few few sort of photons floating around that, that from this background light, but we we can pick it up with specialized telescopes, and we can see that it is coming from everywhere, and that it does it does fit what we would expect for a universe that was glowing with heat in the very early times. Well, I really, something else that caught my attention in your book was the idea, and I don't know if I had heard about this before, but the idea that the universe could technically end at any moment, um, <laughs> and it kind of made me think. I was like, well, should I try something new with my life? Um, but, you know, I mean, yeah. can you explain to us, because you write about it in the book, can you explain to us the first time you learned that about this, and can you explain <laughs> to us also how likely yeah. this is to happen? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, the, when I was when I was in college, I I first started to learn about some of the things that happened in the early universe and this period of of this rapid expansion we think happened in the very early universe, inflation, and how, you know, there was a time when the universe was just stretching out at astonishing speeds and it was changing the structure of of the universe, and we, and there was a time in college where I realized I learned that we didn't know how or why that happened or how or why it stopped, but we're pretty sure it happened. And that was the first time I kind of came to terms with the fact that there are there are massive cosmic forces that that shape the universe that we just have no control over. And <laughs> we we don't understand very well. We can't predict how they might happen. And and as I did research uh, about the end of the universe, um, one of the things that I learned about was this idea called vacuum decay which is a possibility for something that could happen to the universe where basically uh, basically there's this there's this energy field that's throughout the entire universe it's called the Higgs field um, and it has to do with has to do with how physics kind of changed in the very early universe to set up the kind of physics we see today so um, it's a complicated story but essentially there are certain settings for how how physics works in the universe, how you know particles interact with each other, how atoms exist, what kind of you know fundamental forces exist in the universe, and the Higgs field is kind of caught up in that. And there was a time in the very early universe when the Higgs field was different, and it, it, that meant that the the forces of nature were different, the the way physics works in the universe was different, and then it changed, and now we have you know, atoms and molecules and structure in the universe and all of that. And it turns out that there's a theory that that, that field, the Higgs field, could change again. And that would change all of physics, and it would mean that our atoms wouldn't hold together anymore, and uh, everything would be sort of torn apart. <laughs> um, all of physics would break. And um, we, we think it's very, very unlikely that that could happen, 
any time in the next, you know, 10 to the power of 100 years or mm-hmm. something, so trillions and trillions and trillions of years. But if it did happen, it would be something that would be unpredictable, that we wouldn't see coming, that would be very sudden. Um, and uh, and it's it's one of these things where, you know, we have we we have some theories about whether or not it could happen. Um, we think it's probably extremely unlikely, but it's a it's an interesting example from a physicist's perspective of something where our understanding of particle physics, our understanding of the physics is very, very small, could have consequences for the entire cosmos. And as physicists, we're just learning how to make those links between the physics of subatomic universe, you know, how particles work, and the the physics of the evolution of the entire universe. But I should say, every time I talk about vacuum decay, people contact me, they say they're really scared, they get nervous. Um, it's not something to worry about. You know, you're much more likely to get hit by a car <laughs> yeah. crossing the road. You're much more likely to get, get hit by an asteroid coming from space, even though <laughs> that's extremely unlikely. Don't worry about vacuum decay. We don't even know if it's really possible. Um, but it's something as a physicist, it's a very interesting idea to me. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I'm glad um, I can be a little more at ease now. But what are the what are the timelines we're looking at for some of these other ways that the world could end? Like, do we have an idea of approximately when when it could happen? Well, it depends on what kind of scenario you're talking about for the mm-hmm. end of the universe. Um, there, if we were talking about so the most likely end of the universe is something called the heat death, mm-hmm. where basically the the universe just expands and expands and expands, and eventually everything's so diluted that it all kind of decays away and fades out, and there's you know, the universe is basically cold and empty and lonely, um, <laughs> and that's it's just a slow fade, right? And that's something where you know the you have to. You have to uh, go to great lengths to even talk about the numbers that where this would happen. You know, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years. You, can, you know, you don't even have mm-hmm. enough low vocabulary to talk about how long <laughs> that takes. Um, so that one's you know very very long in the future. There are other scenarios where depending on you know how lucky or unlucky we get with certain aspects of physics, we could be talking about you know tens of billions of years maybe. Um, but in any case. You know, a very, very long time from now. Like we talked at the very beginning of this about the the end of the world, you know, mm-hmm. the Earth, where it, within about a trillion years, the sun will be so bright that it'll kind of cook the surface of the Earth. That's that's a, so a billion years is a tiny fraction of how long it would take for any of these end of end of universe scenarios to be likely to happen. So. You know, we should worry about the end of the world before we end of the uh, worry about the end of the universe, mm-hmm. and even the end of the world is a billion years away. So, when you the title of your book, "The End of Everything," are you talking about uh, mostly the end of the Earth as we know it? I'm talking about the end of the everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. <laughs> I'm talking about the end of the universe. Um, so, really, really, the end of of all existence as as we know it. So how has it, um, because you kind of have this, we have about 40 seconds here, but you have this comical approach, like I said earlier, how has it been received in your academic field? Um, You know, I think people, I think people appreciate it. I think a lot (laughs) of us understand that, you know, we kind of have to laugh at these things. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we can talk more. um, We can continue our conversation when we get back and we do have a caller that we can get to, but 
Uh, the number to call if you have a question or comment today is 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio, and we'll be right back. I'm Tanya Mosley. And I'm Juana Summers. People collect all sorts of things. Sports memorabilia, stamps and antique lamps. If you've collected a few classic cars over the years and you also love public radio, consider this. Donate it to this station and it could mean hundreds of dollars in support. Donate online at tpr.careasy.org or call 877-486-1227. Welcome back to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla. We're talking with Dr. Katie Mack. She's a theoretical astrophysicist and author of the book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. If you have a question for Dr. Mack, you can call us at 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. I want to go to a caller that we have. Let's go ahead and go to Christian. And Christian, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. I just wanted to say thank you all for having this conversation on different perspectives. As someone with an engineering background, I never thought that they would. Analyzing systems is pretty important. I can definitely, it can definitely help the springboard sometimes. Springboard. It's interesting how there's a lot of debate over whether things start and end. And it's always nice to have more ammo for your arsenal. All right, Christian, well, thank you so much for that call. Um, and I want to go to another caller that we have, and we have Michael on the line. And Michael, go ahead. You're on the air. I wanted to know how many dimensions do the astrophysicists think we have that we're living in today? How many dimensions are there? All right, Michael, thank you so much for that call. Um, Dr. Mack, do you want to respond to that? Sure, yeah. No, that's a, that's a great question. So in our everyday experience, um, we, we generally experience three dimensions uh, of space, right? So there's sort of forward, backward, left and right, up, down. Um, but in astrophysics, we consider time to be another dimension um, in, in certain ways that, you know, space and time get kind of tangled up in, in uh, relativity. That's one of the sort of basic fundamental building blocks of our understanding of the universe. And so... So we think of our, ourselves as being in a four-dimensional universe, so three dimensions of space and then another dimension of time. Now, there are certain theories um, that suppose the possibility of the existence of more dimensions of space where it might be that there are different dimensions, there are other directions uh, in space that, that, um, you know, that exist, but for certain reasons we, we can't perceive those extra dimensions. And in some of those theories, there's an extra dimension where, you know, you can only, the, it, the reason we don't notice it is that it's, it only, it's only very small. So kind of like if you have a sheet of paper that has two large dimensions, you know, uh, across the, the face of the sheet of paper and one very small dimension, which is the thickness of the paper. And so 
somebody looking at that piece of paper might not notice the the very small dimension, but they they notice they can move around in the in the larger dimensions. And it may be that we have another dimension or several other dimensions that are that exist in our universe, but they're small enough that we don't notice them. That you you can't move very far in those dimensions. Um, but that's one of the idea of of extra dimensions is one of the the ideas people have put forward for why the force of gravity seems to be so much weaker than the other fundamental forces of nature. I mean, if you think about it, you know, uh, the you 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 counteract the force of gravity every time you pick a coffee cup off of the table, right? <laughs> um, but that coffee cup is being held together by other forces, by electromagnetism, and those are much much stronger than gravity, and so. People have suggested that maybe gravity seems to be so weak compared to the other forces because it's sort of leaking out into these other dimensions. And then there are other ways to bring extra dimensions into the picture with uh, ideas like string theory, where there might be many, many other dimensions that that would exist that have um, that change the way that things uh, work on on the smallest scales. But as so far, we don't have any evidence for higher dimensions. That so it seems that. Uh, for all practical purposes, our universe appears to be four-dimensional, you know, three space, one time. But uh, we're still actively searching for evidence of other dimensions. Well, let's go to another caller that we have. Uh, Jason, go ahead. You're on the air. Hello. Yes, I have some questions about what a black hole is and if you could speak a little bit about that um, for the audience. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate that call. And Dr. Mack, I also was curious um, if you could talk to us about black holes and is there a new understanding of them in research? Yeah, black holes are one of my favorite uh, things in the universe. They're very exciting to me. Mine too. Um, they're very is, exciting to me yeah, also. No, they're, they're, you know, there's the sort of thing that really sparks the imagination because they're such a weird kind of object and so different from, from what we usually experience. But Essentially, a black hole is a place in space where matter has collapsed so much that it has basically uh, created a region of space that's that's sort of a, uh, a a very different kind of space that you you can't interact with the, the way that you usually can. So so the way black hole usually forms is you have a massive star, and that massive star has it's got a whole lot of gas and it's it's burning on the inside and that's kind of holding it up. Um, you know, keeping it puffy because of all this heat. But then eventually the, the star runs out of nuclear reactions to, to hold it up, and it starts to fall, collapse on itself. And it, it collapses and collapses, and there's a supernova, and, and the core of the star gets so dense and, and compressed so much that, that and it has so much mass that, that nothing can hold it from collapsing further. And so it keeps it just keeps falling together and forms we think what we call a singularity, so a, a, a sort of very, very dense place in space. And the uh, our, the way we think of gravity, how gravity works in the universe, the way Einstein taught us to think about gravity, general relativity, is that when something has a lot of mass, when something has a lot of gravity, it's actually bending the space around it. Um, and the usual picture there is like if you if you look at, uh, there's an analogy people use where if you look at like a, a trampoline and you put a bowling ball in the center of the trampoline, that kind of bends that the trampoline around it and other things would fall toward it. If you like roll a tennis ball past it, the tennis mm -hmm. ball kind of orbits around and falls in toward where the bowling ball is. Um, so you have to imagine a higher dimension because in space, space is three-dimensional. It's not a two-dimensional sheet like the trampoline. 
But um, anytime there's a really massive thing in space, uh, you know, a planet or a star, it's kind of bending the space around it. It's pulling that space in. And so a black hole is a, is a region of space where there has been so much matter in such a small space that it's, it's bent the space around it to such a degree that anything that gets too close to it has to fall in. Um, and there's a, there's a, sort of, a sort of boundary around that black hole called the event horizon where if you get closer than the event horizon to the center where all that mass was, then uh, you can only go toward that, that uh, singularity. You, you are automatically kind of pulled in, and, and that's the only place you can go. Um, so those black holes exist all over the universe. Um, there are you know, lots and lots of black holes in our galaxy that are the remnants of stars that have, uh, have gone supernova and collapsed. There are also supermassive black holes. So like the center of our galaxy, we have a supermassive black hole in the middle of the galaxy, the middle of the Milky Way. Um, it's about 4 million times as massive as the sun. And that's a black hole where, again, you know, there's this region of space where there's a whole lot of matter really compressed and things that get too close to it can get, uh, you know, can fall in and get sort of torn apart and, and nothing can escape once it goes past the event horizon. Now, we've learned a lot about black holes in the past several years through a number of really cool um, new kinds of observations. So there's been some work to take pictures of black holes. The Event Horizon Telescope is this amazing project where they are getting images of the region around the event horizon of a black hole. And you can see in these images, you can see kind of a, a hole in the middle of the picture because that's where the light uh, goes in and can't come out again. Basically, there's a, it's, a, it's called a shadow of the black hole, but it's this um, this region where the light really is kind of it gets too close to the black hole, it goes in and, and light can't come out again. And so you can see the region around the black hole that's lit up because of all the stuff falling in, but then a, a sort of dark region in the middle where the black hole really is. And so we got we've got these pictures of black holes now, and we also have new ways to study black holes through the way that they they move the space around them when they're when they're coming when they're like spiraling in together. So if there are two black holes that are are uh, orbiting each other and they spiral in and they collide, then in that process they sort of shake the space around them. They they vibrate the space around them, um, and so we, there there are like waves in space called gravitational waves, and we we now have instruments to to feel that vibration of space as black holes are colliding in other galaxies. And so it's a really fascinating time to study black holes because we're learning so much about how they work, um, about, about how they affect the space around them, and what gravity is doing in the vicinity of these objects. Well, that's just so cool. And I'm curious also, like, what would it be like to get sucked into a black hole, whether you're a human <laughs> or just like as a planet? Yeah. So it would be really unpleasant. <laughs> um, we we actually have we have observations of stars getting torn apart by black holes. So sometimes if a black hole is in the center of a galaxy, if a star gets too close to it, the star will get sort of torn apart and um, and sort of it's called disrupted or it, it, these are called uh, tidal disruption events where the the star is sort of stretched out and pulled apart and um, it creates flashes of X-ray radiation. Um, anyway, so we, we've witnessed that where stars have been pulled apart by black holes. 
if a person were, getting, were to get too close to a black hole, I mean, the first thing that would happen is you'd probably get fried by the radiation of just all of the stuff around the black hole swirling in because it's just this really chaotic environment where stuff is falling together really fast and heating up. And so there's usually like X-ray radiation coming off of this disk around the black hole as things are falling in. But then if you get too close, um, you'd start to get stretched because essentially what would happen is the gravity at your feet would be so much stronger than the gravity at your head. It would like pull you, uh, it would <laughs> stretch you out. And there's, a, there's a scientific term for this. Uh, we call this spaghettification. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's a real term that, that's used. Um, so you're kind of stretched into spaghetti. Um, and, and you would just, you know, it would, it would, <laughs> it would, it would just, it would be very unpleasant. <laughs> well, thank you for that explanation. Now I'm, you know, th that's been answered in my head, but, uh, we can go ahead and take another break right here. And when we get back, we'll continue our conversation. The number to call if you have a question or comment is 833-877-8255. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla. We're talking to Dr. Katie Mack. She's a theoretical astrophysicist and author of the book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. And the number to call if you have a question or comment is 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. And you can also email us at thesource at tpr.org. So Dr. Mack, maybe I'm asking an irrelevant or unanswerable question here, but if there's a human mass extinction event on Earth, kind of before the end of the universe, and you know, there's these new humans who are building a society, do you have any insight into like, are they going to have to fight for human rights all over again? Are they going to create credit <laughs> scores? Are there like, like research in, or speculation into how, like would history repeat itself in a way? You know, that, that's something that I, I, I really don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a little outside of my expertise. I think that, you know, I think that a lot of uh, how, how humans interact is shaped by the environments that we're in and, and the conditions that we, that we live in. But, you know, there are a lot of things that are, are just built out of culture and habit and history. And so I think, you know, if there were a new civilization starting from scratch, you know, they would probably have different customs and, and just the way that we see different cultures on the earth have different ways of dealing with the world. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I can say something about uh, what my, what people 100 billion years from now might experience uh, cosmologically, which is, yeah. uh, which is that as, as the universe is expanding, um, the, as, as galaxies are getting farther apart and everything is kind of diffusing through the universe, we do know, uh, based on extrapolating that expansion forward, that there will come a time in about 100 billion years where, you know, future cultures will not be able to see other galaxies in the night sky. So, you know, right now there's like the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, JWST, there are these space telescopes out there that show us these amazing images of distant galaxies and nebulae and all of that cool stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the future, in the very distant future, as the universe expands more and more, there will be a point when those telescopes won't see anything at all because all those other galaxies 
will be moving away from us so quickly and they'll be so far away that we won't be able to see their light anymore. And so if we really want to understand the evolution of the universe, if we really want to understand other galaxies and our own history and our future as, you know, as a species in, in the cosmological context, um, we, we only have 100, 100 billion years to get that, to get that information. <laughs> so uh, we should definitely, um, you know, do this, this cosmology now. <laughs> Yeah, wow, I had no idea about that. That's so interesting. Um, and it looks like we have another caller on the line. And let's go ahead and go to Charles. And Charles, you're on the air. Thank you. Yeah, I'm an amateur uh, geek, I guess. But uh, I had a question about gravity. And I read that gravity is really a result of, uh, it's not so much a force, but a result of space-time and that it merges from time? If you've got a comment on that, or if you could explain that a little more clearly for me. All right, Charles, thank you so much for that call. I appreciate it. And Dr. Mack? Yeah, yeah. So we, we spoke a little while ago about how Einstein's picture of gravity is this idea that gravity is really a curvature of space. So when, when there's a massive object in space, it's bending the space, the space around it and kind of creating a dent in that space. And that's why things move toward a, a gravitating object, because space is bent toward that object. And in Einstein's picture of space and time, space and time are really very much linked together. And so if you're stretching space, you're also stretching time. And there's this kind of way of, of, um, of looking at, at space and time being kind of, kind of like different parts of a, of a grid where everything is kind of um, linked together and um, and can be manipulated. And so the way that we move through space affects the way that we move through time and the way and when there's a gravitating object that's also affecting time. So for example, if you're if you're close to a massive object, like if you're on the surface of a planet, for example, your the time that you experience moves more slowly than if you're far away from a gravitating object. If you so if you're standing on the surface of the earth, your time is moving more slowly than somebody who is at the top of a very, very tall tower, uh, because that person on the top of the tower is, is farther from the gravity of the Earth, basically. They're experiencing slightly less gravity. And so, so time and gravity and space, these are all very much linked together in our current picture of the universe and in how, how space and, and, and the universe work. And so there are, there are many ways in which um, the shape of space or space-time, as we as we call it, affects uh, how we experience gravity, how we experience time, um, how we experience space. All of that is kind of linked together. I want to go to caller Jose. And Jose, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, hi to you, guests. Uh, my, um, I'm Jose, and I'm an astrophotographer. I have three questions. Hopefully, they'll, they'll quick. Mm -hmm. What is the minimum distance of uh, required to see a lensed object? In other words, what, uh, at what distance does lensing occur? How far away is the object? What's the minimum distance? What's the minimum size of an object that can, uh, that can be uh, lensed in space? And uh, can, can lensing be detected from at, with amateur telescopes? All right, Jose, thank you so much for those questions. And Dr. Mack, do you have any insight into that? Yeah. Um, so I 
think that uh, Jose is talking about um, gravitational lensing. Uh, so this is uh, this is connected to that idea of, of space being bent by massive objects. So if there's a massive object in space, then the way that light passes by that object changes because the space is, is bent. And so the light follows a curved path around a massive object instead of just going straight past. It might be curved you know, toward that object. And that gravitational lensing effect um, is really important in astronomy because it allows us to to detect the presence of massive objects, even if we can't see those massive objects. Uh, like, for example, in a galaxy, a lot of the mass of a galaxy is stuff we can't see. Uh, so there's there's stars and there's gas and stuff like that, but there's also what we call dark matter, which is this sort of invisible mass, uh, this invisible matter that also contributes to the gravity of a galaxy. And that invisible matter, that dark matter, also uh, contributes to the curving of space because it's it's something massive, so it bends the space around it. And so we use gravitational lensing to map out where um, where the gravity is, where the matter is, um, and what what it looks like in an image of the universe is is you can see sometimes if you look at an, an image of a cluster of galaxies, for example, um, you'll see uh, sort of arcs of of light around that cluster of galaxies. Um, and those arcs of light sort of circling the cluster are the images of very, very distant galaxies where the light has been distorted as it's moved around that cluster of galaxies, as it's moved through that curved space of that cluster of galaxies. Kind of like if you look through, um, you know, the bottom of a wine glass or something and look up to a light, you see sort of curves of light um, as that light is distorted through that, that, um, that lens of the, uh, of the glass. Um, distant objects, the light from distant objects is distorted by the lens of, of the gravity uh, that's uh, bending the space um, in, in, the, in the, the point in between. Um, so, yeah, so you can, you can definitely see that a lot in space telescope images where um, if there's an image of a big cluster of galaxies, you'll see those, those arcs. I don't know how easy it is to see with amateur telescopes. I think it depends on whether or not you can see one of those um, those big clusters for well enough to see the little arcs around it, probably that's pretty rare. Um, but uh, in terms of like what it takes to see um, to see a, a gravitational lens, uh, it really it really depends on what the object is. I mean, there's there are there are times when a when the gravitational lensing can do something where it just kind of makes makes a, a single star a little bit brighter, um, and this is something that that's where if like if like a black hole passes in front of a star, um, then it can distort the image of the star and make it just a little bit brighter for for a few days, for example. And there are telescopes that watch for that um, to to take a survey of how many objects are moving around in the galaxy that maybe we can't see directly, but if they pass in front of a star and make it a little brighter for a moment, then we would detect that. So there's a whole range of you can have gravitational lensing that happens from entire clusters of galaxies, but you can also see gravitational lensing from like a single star or black hole passing in front of uh, a, a single star just at the right time and or the right distance, you know, just perfectly aligned. So it's a, it's a, there's a huge range of phenomena that are all part of the same picture of gravitational lensing. So I just have one more question and it actually comes from one mm -hmm. of our callers. She writes, are we exasperating the situation because of everything we're doing locally as a heat island, destroying vegetation, pollution? Are we part of the problem that's pushing us toward that ending sooner rather than later? Well, you know, I, I think that in terms of uh, life on Earth, 
there are definitely things that we're doing that can make that a lot harder. Um, so, you know, the way that we're impacting the atmosphere, um, the climate, those are all things that as people living on a planet, we have to really think about and really work to, you know, mitigate the effects of, um, of all of these, all these things that we're doing to change um, our planet. On the perspective of the universe, we're really not important at all. <laughs> so um, there's there's really nothing that anybody anybody on Earth could do uh, that would change the evolution of the universe as a whole. Um, uh, there's it's it's hard to explain exactly how unimportant <laughs> our single planet is to the cosmos. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean you know because we we live in this you know vast universe and we're just this tiny speck. The Earth is, is all we've got, you know, and mm -hmm. there's really nowhere else we can live uh, in the universe without, you know, vast changes in technology and so on, um, at least on mass. And so we we really do have to protect and you know, care for this planet that we live on. And that's something that as a cosmologist, I think about a lot because I know how, how you know, vast this universe is, how powerful it is, how mm -hmm. fragile we are living on this little planet. While Dr. Katie Mack is a theoretical astrophysicist and author of the book, The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. And Dr. Mack, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. The Source is hosted and produced by David Martin Davies. Kayla Padilla is our booking and engagement producer. Engineering support from Ruben Garcia, Jesse Reeves, and Steve Short. Dan Katz is TPR's Vice President of News. The Source is made possible with support from the Gladys and Ralph Lazarus Foundation.